Welcome back to The Wrestling Room. I am excited to share with you today from 1 Samuel chapter 30. And in these six verses, verses 1 through 6, there is a nugget of wisdom that has been so helpful to me. And I am excited to share it with you. If you will apply this today, if you will apply what I'm going to share with you, it will change your life as it has mine. So I'm challenging you. Grab a pen, grab a notepad, and take notes with me. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to launch right into this passage, and um, we're going to see what God has for you. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, help me to speak clearly, concisely, Spirit of God, speak through me, and I pray that you enlighten the hearts and minds of the people listening. May they be not just hearers of the word, but doers of your word, God. May they be teachable, and I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo. And the main character, Edmond Dantes, has experienced almost uh, monumental suffering and pain and injustice in his life. And in the scene that I'm going to quote from in a moment, he is at the 16th birthday party of Albert Mondego, a young man who's getting ready to launch into adulthood. And he stands and he gives this powerful piece of advice to Albert, this challenge. And I want to give it to you as well. He says this, life is a storm, my young friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment and be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when that storm comes. Someone has said that in this lifetime, we are either in a storm, we're exiting a storm, or we're getting ready to go, ready to go into a storm. That is our life. Job put it this way very cryptically in Job 14 verse 1. He said, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. <laughs> Cryptic, but true. The Bible teaches so frequently in contrasts. It will pit one character against another, one scenario against another, one path against another, and then portray the outcome. And we, as the watchers, as the readers, as the observers, we get to choose which direction we want to go. And in this story, uh, 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see two dramatic responses to adversity. This story stars one of my favorite biblical characters, King David. <laughs> The great warrior King David, I admire him immensely, certainly not a perfect man, but he was no stranger to adversity. And the Bible says, if you want to be wise, walk with the wise. If you want to be a warrior, walk with a warrior, shadow a warrior. And we get the privilege in the scripture to live with, to shadow warriors, men and women of God who knew what it meant to face adversity and battle through it. So I want to look at two questions. I want to answer two questions. Number one, what are my options in adversity? What are my options? And number two, what differentiates someone who wilts in adversity from someone who stands firm, who faces it, and battles through it? What is the difference? So that's our mission for this teaching today. Now, before we jump into the passage, I want to give you some background. David is one short step away from taking over as king of Israel. He's been chased like a dog around the deserts of Israel for seven years by his father-in-law, King Saul, who is 
rabidly jealous and insecure and threatened by David. And David has just been running for his life with a bounty on his head. But in that seven years, he has accumulated this following of 600 motley mongrel men, his merry men, as it were. And um, he's become their leader. And so he and his men have been battling hostile nations to Israel. And they're on their way home to their hometown, Ziklag, tired, worn out, can't wait to see their wives and their kids. And they top the hill and they look down at their city and their hearts stop because smoke is ascending from the city. And so I want to pick up the story right there in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. So go, go with me, grab your Bible, and uh, here we go. It says, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. So they scramble throughout the whole town, the whole city of Ziklag, looking for anyone, anyone. And it's just a smoldering wasteland. It's, it's, it's a ghost town. Nobody's there. And in verse 4, it says, Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. They cried out their tears. They were exhausted, devastated, Verse 5, now David's two wives had also been taken captive, so David was not exempt. His family was gone. But in verse 6, something twists, something turns, something changes. Verse 6 says this, moreover, in other words, in addition to the anguish of losing his family, David was greatly distressed because the people, his men, spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. I'm going to stop right there. They were embittered. They were embittered because of their sons and daughters. The first response to adversity is this. I can become embittered. The sorrow of the men had twisted. It had mutated and become bitterness. They have slid. They, what does bitterness mean? Let me, let me establish that. Bitterness means to be vexed deeply, to be angered, to be troubled, to be profoundly frustrated, so much so that brash and impulsive decisions are made. And that's exactly what we're going to see. They had slid from devastated to deeply vexed. They, their anguish had become seething anger. Their burden was twisted into bitterness. And it's interesting to me in this passage, there is no mention whatsoever of consulting the Lord in this situation. He, their God, was conspicuously absent the burden bearer was not bearing burdens. They were not casting their burdens onto him. For the 600 men 
God had been completely left out of this situation. He was nowhere in the equation. And with, when that happens, bitterness is the result. So I want to talk about three. I want to ask the question, what are the results of descending into bitterness? I want to give you three results of descending into bitterness. Number one, bitterness dishonors God and it disparages his character. When we are in adversity and we scramble to solve our own problem or we exhaust every other option before turning to the Lord or we don't turn to him at all, it communicates this very clearly. I do not trust God. It dishonors him. But secondly, those around us who we have declared our faith in God before. We have, they know that we're a follower of Jesus. They know that we have put our faith in God. They're watching us in adversity and they're seeing us scramble. They're not watching us go to our knees. They're seeing us scramble around trying to figure out the situation and it communicates to them, God is not trustworthy. It disparages the character of God. So when we function out of bitterness, God's name is dishonored and his character is disparaged. But number two, bitterness defiles many people. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, See to it, make sure, be vigilant about this, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. That's what bitterness does, causes trouble. And by it, many are defiled. Many are defiled. You guys, we, we have to understand, we think COVID has been a scourge in our nation. Bitterness, the virus of bitterness is far more serious than the virus of COVID. Far more serious. In verse 6, it says, the people spoke of stoning David. Well, where did that idea come from? Somebody, out of their bitterness, put the blame for this whole thing on David and began to propagate, began to tweet, began to post began to circulate a petition, David needs to go. This is David's fault. And by it, it says all the people were talking about stoning David. Bitterness defiles many. Our culture is filled with bitterness. Propagated and provoked by media and social media, we are toxic with bitterness, angry, frustrated, vexed. And this doesn't, this hasn't skipped over the church. There are many believers that are just soaking and, and in all sorts of toxic bitterness. Brothers and sisters, it ought not so to be for us. <laughs> Should not be that way. But number three, number three, bitterness results in destructive decisions. Destructive decisions. They were thinking about stoning their leader. In this moment of deep emotion that had descended into bitterness, they were going to take out to kill the man who had rescued them, who had mentored them, who had protected them and provided for them, God's anointed king. And as you read the rest of the story, which we won't get to today, he's the one through which God provides the answer to recover every single one of their loved ones, all of their property, and come back with far more beyond that. He was the answer, but they're getting ready to stone him. When we make decisions 
out of bitterness, it clouds all of our decisions because bitterness is the hot lava that comes out of the volcano of anger and decisions made out of anger are always clouded. These decisions create more problems, not less. So bitterness results in damaging and destructive decisions. But verse 6 does not end with the bitterness of the people and David getting ready to be stoned. It doesn't end there. Let's go back to chapter 30, verse 6, the last half. It says this, this powerful statement, but David strengthened himself, or as another version says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. There is another way to deal with adversity. Adversity always offers a fork in the road, a second option. Let me tell you about the word encourage. This is a powerful word. It has kind of a three-part, three-layered meaning. The first layer is to tie fast, like a tying a rope around a, a, a hitching post. To strongly bind one's self to. It's the first layer. The second is to fortify, which means to strengthen by adding something. To strengthen by adding something. And the third layer means to take possession of. So to bind fast, to fortify or strengthen, and to take possession of. So in fork in the road number one, an embittered heart becoming embittered, here's how that works. The 600 merry men of David, they tied their horse to the hitching post of their circumstances. They hitched their wagon to their story of gloom and doom. Now, was it real? You bet it was real. But they latched on to it. And then they strengthened their story or they fortified this story of gloom and doom with the belief that David somehow was to blame and that he needed to go. And finally, they were possessed by the spirit of bitterness that led them to begin plotting David's downfall. This is the antithesis to being encouraged in the Lord. So let's look at the second option. Illustrated by David, the warrior king. Fork in the road number two. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And this is the choice of elite warriors. Descending into bitterness is the choice of the masses. This is the direction most go. In this story, it's 601. <laughs> One goes down the road of encouragement, 600 down the road of embitterment. So here's how this looks. I bind myself. David bound himself. He ran to, he looked to, he directed his attention to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the heavens and earth, Jehovah Sabaoth, the, the commander of heaven's armies. David bound himself to his God. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That word wait upon the Lord literally means to entangle oneself around. It means grab hold of, entangle oneself around. 
Very similar to this word right here. David grabbed hold of, he tied himself to, he hitched his wagon to the Lord his God. And then he fortified himself with the truth. In our circumstances of adversity, we don't just bind ourselves, we fortify ourselves with the truth of the word of God, with evidence that comes from this great book that God has given us, of God's greatness, his faithfulness in the past, his faithfulness in the present, his faithfulness in the future. And we fortify our hearts and our minds with truth, with truth. If we do those things, Two things, the third layer happens. I will be possessed by, I will be infused with, injected with courage. With courage, I will be supercharged with dynamic strength. People, this is our privilege as believers. We can live this way. This is not just fable or fantasy. This is reality. This is our opportunity. This is what is granted to us by the King of Heaven. Now, Scripture says this, all who look to him, all who tie their wagon to him, all who hitch their wagon to, to the King of kings and Lord of lords are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Their hearts are never filled with bitterness. All who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Now, that's great stuff. I want to answer the question, how do we do this? How do I encourage myself in the Lord? This is not mystical, it's not mysterious, it's actually very simple and, and uncomplicated, but it requires that you do it. It requires work. Scripture declares this, the power of life and death are in the tongue. The power of life and death are in the tongue. If I want to encourage myself in the Lord, I must speak words life-giving words. And so I want to share two, two ways in which we speak to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Grab your Bible again. Number one, I speak to the Lord. I speak to the Lord. And I will say this, I believe you should speak out loud. I believe that the ears need to hear what's going on in the heart and mind. My ears need to hear these words. So I encourage you, find a place when you begin to practice what I'm going to teach you to speak out loud to the Lord. I encourage myself in the Lord by speaking to the Lord. Now, turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, and I want to give you the first illustration of this. This is, this is a beautiful passage. This is actually written by Moses. So we're not only looking at the life of David, we're looking at the life of Moses. It's amazing. Great warriors have the same practices. So here's Moses. And he says in Psalm 91, a psalm of adversity, a psalm of darkness, a psalm of trial, and a psalm of per protection from God. He says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And here's our verse, verse 2. Moses says this, I will say to the Lord, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's not telling someone about the Lord. He's not speaking to himself about the Lord at this point. He's speaking to the Lord directly. My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's speaking to the Lord. 
And this is a powerful, powerful way to encourage yourself in the Lord, to speak to the Lord. Now go over to Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. Now somebody might say, well, isn't this just prayer speaking to the Lord? I want to say to you, this is more than prayer. This is more, to, more than prayer. This is declaration. This is authoritative declaration. <laughs> and I believe the Lord loves it. He absolutely embraces it and loves it. It absolutely causes his heart to jump for joy. It's a declaration that I will put my trust in you, O God, and I'm speaking to you directly. I'm coming boldly to your throne of grace, and I'm making strong declaration. This is about infusion of faith. This is about vaccination against doubt and unbelief that slips and slides us right down into bitterness. Now go over to Psalm 57. Psalm 57, this is another powerful declaration by David. In this case, David, not Moses, but David. And I'm going to encourage you, write this down because this is a cheat sheet for you. This is a declaration that I make. I love this declaration. It's so strong. David says this to the Lord. Now, let me give you context. Verse 4, 5, and 6 of Psalm 57, David says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are, are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. So David is in the middle of adversity again. <laughs> Go figure. But in verse 7, he says this, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. There are so many. They get in the midst of the lion's den and they wilt. They fall over. They give up. They lapse into bitterness. David is rising up and speaking to the Lord and saying, in the middle of this pit of vipers, in the middle of this lion's den, in the middle of this adversity, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And then he says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. <laughs> One thing about warriors is this. They don't live out of their emotions. They live out of their will. They choose to praise. They choose to sing. And they allow feelings to follow. I remember a chapel in Bible college when the, the, the speaker said this. He says, if you don't feel like getting out of, the, of, out of bed to spend time with God, leave your feelings in bed and get out. Get your will and get out. Grab your will and get out of bed. Leave your feelings in bed. <laughs> I'll never forget that. We don't feel like singing praises. We don't feel like getting up in the morning and spending time with God. But if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be infused with strength, you speak to the Lord. My heart is steadfast. I will sing praises. And you can just feel the strength of God beginning to rise up. The presence of God beginning to descend on you. Mark it down. Mark it down. So first, the first way in which we encourage ourselves in the Lord is we speak to the Lord. We declare to the Lord, you are my refuge. You are my strong tower. You are my protection. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing praises. I will open my mouth and declare how great you are. Boom. Beautiful. But there's a second way. There's a second way. Number two, number two, I speak to myself. I speak to myself, and I would encourage you again, out loud. I speak to myself out loud. Take your Bible, 
and go to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. While you're turning, I want to read this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, Some of the best talks in the world are those which a man has with himself. <laughs> he who speaks to everybody except himself is a great fool. Wow. Let me just explain uh, a little bit of background before we go to Psalm 42. You and I are tripart beings. We were made in God's image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made us spirit, soul, and body. Our body connects us with the earth and is the center of our five senses. Our soul connects us to people and is the center of thought and emotion. Our spirit is the part that connects us with God. It is the control center that is responsible for obedience to God and for leadership of your soul and your body. I'm going to say that again. Your spirit is the part of you that connects you with God and is the control center responsible for obeying God and taking leadership of your soul and your body. Good stuff right there. Now, your soul has developed a script, a scrolling dialogue of thoughts and beliefs that in many cases drag your emotions right into the pit of despair and right down into bitterness. Now, part of your personal growth and my personal growth is becoming aware of what a counselor friend of mine graphically calls the itty-bitty shitty committee. Forgive the graphic nature of that, but I want you to get a very clear picture of what we're talking about when that chatter in the brain starts up, when the volume of chatter starts. These are the whiny but pervasive little voices in your head that perpetually try to convince you that everything is going to hell in a handbasket, that you are a victim of your circumstances and how life is against you. And how you and why you deserve more and why you should just look out for yourself. Look out for number one. That's the little life is all about me. Life stinks committee in your head. We all have it. We all have it. And it only takes a trigger. A news item, a tweet, a text, an email a comment or a billboard or even a bumper sticker to convene the committee and to ignite this scrolling dialogue in our heads. You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you do. And when it happens, your soul takes a plunge. When you sense this trigger, when you sense the Life Stinks committee assembling, your spirit must shut it down. Let me say that again. When you sense that trigger, when you sense that your life stinks committee assembling, your spirit must shut it down. Your spirit must speak to, must command, and must take leadership of your soul. Brian Tracy, leadership trainer and author, says it this way, Great leaders have learned to control their inner dialogues. They've learned how to shut down that committee in your head that is 
going to stoke the fires of self-pity and stir the pot of poor me. You got to shut it down. You got to shut it down. And this is precisely what David did and what David had learned to do. He had learned to and trained himself to shut down his unruly, whiny, moany, groany, whimpering soul and bring it into submission. And so I want to look at several passages that demonstrate this. Turn to Psalm 42, verse 5. Psalm 42, verse 5. And let's look at this, and then we're going to go to Psalm 62. So Psalm 42, verse 5. And here's what we have. We have the Spirit speaking to the soul. Psalm 42, verse 5. The Spirit is speaking to the soul and saying, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Questions are powerful. The right question asked at the right time can unlock all sorts of revelation. (laughs) And when your spirit asks your soul a question like this, get ready. There's going to be a laundry list of reasons why the soul can justify being moany and groany and whiny and whimpery. (laughs) Why it's a victim. But after it gets done unloading all the laundry list of justified reasons for being a victim, the Spirit then commands the soul. And here we have it in the latter part of verse 5. He says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Then he commands the soul, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He commands the whiny soul, the despairing soul, the bitter soul, hope in God, hope in God. Brothers and sisters, in the middle of your adversity, you speak to the Lord, but you speak to yourself as well. Your spirit commands your whiny soul to hope in God. His presence is our help. Go to Psalm 62. Let's look at another passage. Psalm 62. And this one's a little more in-depth. This is a little more tricky, but it's very interesting. When you read the scripture, you must read with your mind engaged because what is going on in these pages is an adventure. It is a a dialogue. It is a movement. you got to read with your eyes open. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you discernment. Here's what's going on. Verse 1 and verse 2, it is the Spirit giving report as to the condition current condition of the soul. And here's what the Spirit is saying. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. So the Spirit is, as if it were, watching the soul and saying, my soul waits in silence for God. My soul is sitting peacefully, calmly, in a place of faith, in a place of trust, waiting on God. But in verses 3 and 4, that all changes. If you live in the same planet I do, you know you can be in a place of peace one moment and then off the rails the next. In verse 3 and 4, the soul ceases to wait in silence before God. It gets distracted. Uh, Like Peter walking on the water, had his eyes on Jesus, but boom, got distracted by the wind and the waves. Verses three and the four is the soul getting distracted. And here's what it says. The soul is now freaking out. It says, how long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? 
You have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. So he's now focused on all the problems. And you can just feel the consternation stirring up inside of him. All the dirt on the bottom of the pond is now in the water. So what does the Spirit have to do? The Spirit has to intervene again. The Spirit has to command the soul. So let's go to verse 5. In verse 5, the Spirit steps up and takes leadership over this unruly soul that is distracted by all the problems, distracted by all the baloney. And he says this, My soul, wait in silence for God only. You got distracted. You got your eyes on the waves and the wind. Get your eyes back on Jesus. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. <laughs> on God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge in, or my refuge is in God. And so you have this dialogue, this interaction between the leadership of the spirit and the submission and followership of the soul. And brothers and sisters, if you want to encourage yourself in the Lord, you must learn how to speak to yourself, your spirit commanding your soul. Let me give you an illustration of this. About a year and a half, there was a major epiphany moment for me. I came home from a very difficult day at work. I had a major sale go sideways, so I lost a huge paycheck. And all the appointments that I was on were worthless. I drove all over, all over the place, fought Seattle traffic, which is horrendous, for nothing. Meanwhile, on our text line, our, our sales team text line, we have another guy who's reporting one, two, three major sales. So he has a huge five-figure payday, and I'm beating my head up against a wall. And I got home, and I was, I was bitter. I had jealousy towards my coworker, and I had bitterness in my heart, and I walked in the door, and I unloaded the dump truck on my wife. I unloaded the dump truck on my wife because after all, the scripture does say, doesn't it? Casting all your cares upon your wife for she cares for you. She will sustain you. Isn't that what the scripture says? Well, at least it did for me on that day. And I went to dump all this toxic bitterness on my wife and she said, no, thank you. I opt out. She said, no way. <laughs> and I was furious. I thought, well, isn't this, isn't this what my wife is for, you know, to help me carry my burdens? And she said, nope, not going to do it. And so I was furious with her. And so I just did a U-turn, went back out to the car and just drove around for a little while. And I found myself at third place books. I bought a day old croissant and a cup of black coffee, you know, drowning my woes in cheap food. I had a bad day. I lost a sale. Didn't make any money. So cheap food. And, but I'd been working. I'd been working on this very principle. And so I got out a binder and I opened it up and there was a blank piece of paper on one side, blank piece of paper on the other side. And I basically did a brain dump. I took all of the thoughts that were in my head, every one of them, no, no a censorship. And I dumped them all onto the left hand page. I just wrote them about 12 different, very dark, toxic thoughts. <laughs> and then one by one on the right side of the page, I addressed them. The toxic thought number one, truth from the word of God. 
Toxic thought number two, truth from the word of God. Lie number three, truth from the word of God. Lie number four, truth from the word of God. And it took me about an hour to walk through all of those items, but I filled two pages with thoughts of my spirit essentially speaking to my soul and bringing it into submission to truth. And I learned two things. I learned two things in this process. Number one, I learned how powerful it was to encourage myself in the Lord and that I could actually do it. I learned this grand skill of encouraging myself in the Lord. And my wife doesn't maybe even realize it, but she, you know, in a sense, walked free. There was some liberation for her that day when I learned how to do this. But number two, the second thing I learned is that this works internally. I had a resurgence of strength in the presence of the Lord and encouragement. And out went the bitterness, out went the depression, out went the dark moods, and I was filled <laughs> with encouragement, with courage. And when I walked out of third place books and, and headed back home, I was a different person. I had the radiance again of the Lord on my face. All who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. My face retained, a re, the, the radiance returned to my face. Friends, it was a breakthrough. And there have been many times now in my prayer walks or when I feel down, my wife doesn't maybe even know all the times she doesn't get dumped on because I go out and I encourage myself in the Lord. I speak to the Lord, declaring my allegiance to him. My heart is steadfast, oh my God. And I speak to myself, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Hope in God, hope in God. And brothers and sisters, this was modeled by David. The end of that story is that David went to prayer and he received the answer. And he took his men and they chased after the raiders. They recovered all of the women, all of the children, all of the baggage, all of the stolen goods, and much more. They came back richer than they went out. <laughs> Powerful story. Read the rest of it for yourself. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Adversity always has a fork in the road. The road of the embittered heart, the road of the encouraged heart. My prayer for you is that you will learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord, as I've shared simple, practical means to do it, and that you will take the road of the encouraged heart, and it will make all the difference all the difference and your your spiritual growth will begin to jump friends we have crazy days coming we have adversity coming down the pike you're going to need to know how to encourage yourself in the lord there are going to be days there's nobody going to be there to encourage you when we get encouragement from others that's a bonus that's the cherry on top but as warriors as people who are growing spiritually we must learn to encourage ourselves in the lord as david did let me pray for you and we'll be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for this nugget buried in this passage that God is so invigorating, so encouraging, um, so powerful. Lord, I pray for those listening to my voice that they will take this knowledge and turn it into action, oh God. They won't just be hearers of the word, they'll be doers of the word and be transformed by the renewing of their mind in the process. And this is my prayer for them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for 
opening your Bible with me. This is good stuff, people. Good stuff. Have a great week. I'll see you next week. God bless you. Thank you.